You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. We're going through a series in Luke's Gospel, and I'll remind us of last week's message from Pastor Greg in Chapter 8. Because last week's story was really the first half of the story for this week. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 8, where we'll be. Uh, Last week, the disciples were going across the lake and got struck with the terrible storm that uh, nearly killed them. And then uh, Jesus blew their minds by speaking and and calming the storm in the boat. And uh, last week's story ended with a question, an important question. Actually, there's two questions. Uh, from verse 25 that I wanted to read. The first one comes from Jesus, where he asks of the disciples, he says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? So that's an important question. And it seems like they actually don't know, because then they question themselves. They were fearful, they were amazed, and they asked one another, who then is this? Talking of Jesus, who is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. So as we start this week, uh, Luke could have answered this question with the next verse plainly and, and taught us in that way, but instead he's going to tell us the rest of the story, and we'll find the answer as we go through. Um, I'm going to read Luke chapter 8, starting in 26, going to 39. It says, Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When they got out on land, a demon-possessed man met them, Uh, from town met them. For a long time, he'd worn no clothes and did not stay in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon to deserted places. What's your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. Remember, we learned last week about the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside, and so the demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. So the demons came out of the man, and they entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the men who were tending them saw what had happened, they ran off, and they reported it in the town and in the countryside. The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, and they found the man that the demons had departed from sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him, but he sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. So off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord for us today. For two summers after high school, I worked at a Bible camp called Gull Lake Center. Shout out to Gull Lake. 
Uh, that's where I, I met my lovely wife, praise the Lord. Um, I have lots of good memories. If you've ever been around a summer camp, you'll know that um, th- what, what, what would be considered crazy in the real world is considered normal at summer camp. Right? Summer camp is kind of like another planet where anything goes. It's wild and crazy. All sorts of fun happens, and that's, it's, it's great. One of the types of uh, fun that I recall from Gull Lake is the thing that we called memorable moments. As the name implies, uh, the goal of this time was to basically create an extra special fun time of connection for the cabins. And it, uh, it usually happened on the second last night of the week. And so the cabin leaders and the other leaders would coordinate these memorable moments for the cabins. And the, the key ingredient to memorable moments is that it was supposed to happen after lights out, right? So it's kind of like a jailbreak from the cabin. And kids, if you're listening, just pay no attention to what I'm telling you. These are the secrets of, of camp. But uh, anyways, um, you, you're breaking out of the cabin with your leader, of course. And then um, it, was a, it was always hilarious to watch them leave the cabins trying to sneak out. Uh, because that was the thing. It's like you don't want to get caught after lights out with, with your cabin. Um, so they'd sneak out, and the, the leader would have something planned. So they'd go to the kitchen to eat ice cream, or they'd have a bouncy castle that they would blow up and, and sleep in in the gym, or have a fire outside with marshmallows, just whatever they could come up with. And so truly, these were often you know, the highlights of the week, a really good time of connection and just so much fun and, and a memorable moment indeed. However, something else that almost always happened that I recall is that often in the cabins, there was one or two kids who were maybe a little bit shy or, or a quieter, more introverted type of kid. Um, and memorable moments for those kids tended to actually be uh, a bit of a terrifying experience, right? Because they didn't want to break the rules. They didn't want to sneak out in the dark and run around and tripping over logs in the bushes and stuff because they were going to get caught. And so it was very scary for some. Um, and it didn't help. Crystal and I were just rolling our eyes. It didn't help that some of the cabin leaders would tell their cabins that if they got caught, they would like lose their job. Or, or that they would have to be scrubbing floors for the rest of the week or whatever, right? They would take it so far and make such a big deal out of it. And, and so it was a memorable moment, mostly for the good, lots of fun, but also maybe because it was really scary. Depends on the kid. Um, and so that, that's something I was thinking about as I read this story, because Jesus creates so many of these memorable moments for his disciples, doesn't he? So many of them. But I think that this story that we're reading right now has to be in the top five of the disciples' memorable moments for sure. Um, in fact, it, it kind of is, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell this story of crossing the lake, that time that Jesus took them across the lake on the boat, and then the, the demon-possessed man came out, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so let's remember, uh, like I think Greg told us last week, crossing the water was not a, a popular activity or even a really smart idea because of the ways that storms could come across, but that's what Jesus wanted to do. Um, and not only the fear of storms, but then the, actually the destination that they were headed to was also highly undesirable. It was not something that they felt good about doing because this region, the Gerasene region, it's in the southeast part of the Sea of Galilee, uh, is Gentile country, right? So they're leaving their side of the tracks, so to speak, and Jesus is taking them to the other side of the tracks. And for a good Jewish boy, like the, many of the disciples, you know, this was a place where their mothers told them never to go. 
a place that was not safe for them. It was foreign and, and so, so on. Um, biblical scholar Marty Solomon points this out, that the Gentile region represents a pagan environment, right? Where if you were a religious Jew, you did not want to step foot on this part of the shore. Uh, supposedly, in the tradition of the rabbis, if you even verbally acknowledged this area, you were unclean for seven days just by saying it. So I bring this up to give us a sense of just how totally, you know, outside of their mental framework, outside of their comfort zones, this journey was for Jesus to take his followers on. This memorable moment probably seemed like a really bad idea to most of them. Um, you know, they were going to get caught. They were going to get in trouble. It was so much safer back where they belonged. And, and they should have just stayed in bed this morning or called in sick or whatever. This is how we can sort of imagine their feelings. And then, you know, the sailing didn't go so good, although Jesus did just, like I said, blow their minds with the miracle of calming the storm. Amazing. But then once they do get to Gentile country, they step onto land, and the first thing that happens is the crazy, naked guy starts running out and screaming at them and freaking everybody out. Um, not to mention uh, that pigs are everywhere as well. And if, if you know... Uh, about the Levitical law, pigs are unclean for Jews, right? So this is kind of like a nightmare, um, truly, for the disciples. They're no doubt thinking, what a, what a bad idea. I knew it. I knew it. We shouldn't have come across. We shouldn't have arrived in this God-forsaken part of the world. But here we are. <laughs> so what happens next is the showdown, right? The legendary showdown between the power of evil and the demon-possessed man and the power of God himself in Jesus. Except that it really isn't that much of a showdown, is it? It's not that much of a fight. Jesus arrives on this scene where spiritual evil is in full force, and then we read in verse 28 that two interesting things happen. The first is the, the answer to that question that we read from the disciples of who is this man, Jesus? Well, verse 28 is our answer. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? There's our answer from the lips of not the disciples, uh, but from a demon-possessed man. Demons recognize Jesus, right, who he is when they see him. This is the son of the most high God. He is divine, and he's powerful, and he is present. And so the second thing that happens in verse 28 is the, the demons think, we're done for, right? We're doomed. Because of this presence of Jesus, they feel they're done for. They beg for mercy. They cry out, and they say, don't destroy us with your holy presence. And this is the first reminder for us this morning that I want us to take from this story, is simply that the presence of of Jesus is totally overpowering against the presence of darkness and evil. The truth is that the presence of Jesus is totally overpowering against spiritual evil. The beginning of John's gospel describes Jesus in this way in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. So this means that in whatever ways Satan exercises his destruction in God's creation, that he cannot, he will not overcome the light of Jesus, God's Son. Colossians 2.15 emphasizes this. It says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them, ultimately at the cross, but also in his life in this story that we're reading. This, this, today's story is a dramatic example of how this works. We see the demons. They're begging at Jesus' feet because uh, and, and, they can't compete with him. Light drives out darkness. Evil powers obey the Son of God's command. And at the presence of Jesus, which dwells in us as believers, evil and destruction can be overpowered today as well. So we're encouraged by this truth that our Savior, the one we serve and follow and that is present with us, overcomes forces of evil. Praise God. This is good. Um, So back to the passage, let's talk about uh, the pigs for a little while. It's it's very interesting. For the record, this is a strange story, right? Can we agree? Just nod our heads. Yes, this is a a crazy story, especially if you've, you know, never heard it before. Maybe you're not uh, that familiar with it, but nonetheless, it's a crazy story. Um, But it is full of meaning. Um, So I want to talk about that, especially with, with these poor Pig, uh, pigs. <laughs> uh, Mark's account uh, says that there was 2,000 pigs in the herd. So that is more pigs than I think I've ever seen in my life. A lot of pigs that, unfortunately for them and for their farmers, they get involved in this situation. And that's the last time they ever see the light of day shining off the lake. <laughs> um, so when we hear this story, I think we tend to assume something that I want to clear up. We, and maybe it's been taught to you too, but I, I think that I've assumed before that Jesus is the one who like, kills the pigs, right? And that's kind of confusing for us. That's because it's actually not the case. Who is it that actually drives the herd of pigs off the cliff? It's the demons, right? It's the demons that, it's, it's evil that causes them to all die, not Jesus. Now, Jesus allows it to happen, yes, so he's sovereign in the situation. It's not an accident. But Jesus, I wouldn't say it was his intent to destroy 2,000 you know, pigs and probably the economic stability of those farmers and so on and so forth. But what matters in this moment to Jesus is the soul of this one man whose life is just destroyed by demonic possession, right? What matters to Jesus is the freedom of this human who he's come in contact with. As a side note, it is ironic because the demons beg Jesus, say they, don't ca- they say, don't cast us into the abyss in verse 31, uh, but then in the pigs, they all run off into the abyss of the waters anyways, and so that's where they belong, is back in hell. Um... But the pigs are symbolic, aren't they? As I said, let's, uh, as I said they represent uh, that which is unclean in the Jewish law, so, so Jews don't eat pork. So we could take this as a symbol to teach us that Jesus fulfills the Levitical laws, right? And he does away with that, with, with that which is unclean for believers from this point forward. He, he destroys it. 
Uh, 2 Timothy 1.10 teaches that this has now been made evident through the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus abolishes death. This is a picture of what's happening, right? The demons, they go off into the water and the pigs, representing how Jesus overcomes these things for us. But there's more symbolism also in this setting of the story that was completely lost on me until I started to learn about it that I wanted to share with you. I was very interested to learn that at this time, a Roman legion was stationed in the area that Jesus lands on by boat where this story is supposed to take place, right? So a legion is a group of, of soldiers. And so this is significant and interesting, but it gets even crazier. Um, the legions each have emblems, right? Or symbols of, uh, like on their shields and on their armor, uh, animals. So there's pegasuses, uh, storks, uh, lions, all, all sorts of animals. Well, what do you suppose is the animal on the 10th Roman legion stationed very nearby uh, to where this event happened? Pigs. <laughs> they're pigs, or boars, to put it more militantly, right? But they're pigs. And, and if you're hearing this and you're skeptical, which is okay, I was when I heard this too, you can look it up. They're all, you know, they were very well organized. The Romans were organized. We have a list of these things. Uh, in the history books. And yes, this is true that at this time, the 10th Legion of the Romans was stationed there, and uh, <laughs> their emblem was the pig. So the context suddenly becomes really interesting. It doesn't change our basic understanding. You can read this story and get the same gospel message from it, but this adds something to it as well with the symbolism. Because, okay, there's the man who comes out, and, and he says his name is Legion, which obviously reminds us of the Roman legion. And then the demons ask to go into the pigs, which again reminds us of the same Roman legion, right? Legions and pigs. It's, it's all mixing together in this kind of crazy uh, symbolism, which I find really interesting. So the events in this story, I would say, symbolize that God's kingdom through Jesus is obviously confronting um, evil empires of the world. And this is in the, the biblical narrative right from the start to the end. But God's kingdom clashes against those who are in the business of building their own kingdoms of power and oppressing others and enacting in sin instead of in righteousness, right? But we should note that Jesus didn't sail to the Gerasenes to find the actual Roman legion and destroy them, right? I would say he has the power to do this. After all, just a few hours ago on the lake, he calmed the storm with just a word. And yet, he doesn't. His kingdom comes on earth as a spiritual force which destroys demonic power to save and liberate human beings, even one man at a time like this man on the shore. So I wanted to read Matthew 18.36, which I've probably read a few times already as we go through Luke, but it's just such a good passage speaking to this, which says, Jesus says, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. 
So does Jesus bring liberty and freedom? Absolutely. But it is ultimately a spiritual freedom. It does have practical implications at different times, but uh, Jesus brings a spiritual freedom that saves creation from the fall, not a political freedom that liberates first century Jews from the Romans. So the avenue through which God wins the fight against all that is wrong in the world is not by overthrowing, uh, overthrowing the Roman uh, Empire or any other empire other than the empire of Satan himself, right? That's who Jesus is fighting and winning against, as is evident in our, our story today. Um, as Greg was reading uh, the, from the prophet Isaiah this morning, I was wondering if he was going to read uh, this prophecy, which I had in my notes. Uh, it's a different one, but it's interesting anyways that we're kind of going back to Isaiah. Uh, from Luke 4, Jesus quotes the prophet, uh, saying, uh, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what does this look like? How, how is this fulfilled in Jesus? Is it by overthrowing a, a, a legion of Roman soldiers with heavenly military force? Or by overthrowing thousands of demons which were terrorizing this man and casting them back into hell? It's by saving the demon-possessed man. Right? And, and this is uh, repeating the theme that Luke has been teaching us over and over, that God's kingdom is for outsiders, it's for outcasts, it's for those who, who society looks down upon. And let me tell you, in this setting, this man, you know, the naked guy living in the tombs, he was 100% outcast, right? He had nothing. And Jesus uh, saves him brings him into his, his kingdom with love and grace. Uh, as we conclude, at, at the end of the passage in verse 39, I loved how Jesus sends the man away to tell his friends what God has done for him. He wants to be his disciple, right? Jesus, uh, Jesus wants, or the man wants to be one of Jesus' disciples, but he says, no, uh, go and tell everyone, what God has done for you. This brings us full circle uh, back to the answer of the questions of the disciples of who Jesus was, which the demons answer. He's the son of the most high God. Again, Jesus says, he doesn't say, go and tell them what I've done for you, although it was him. He says, go and tell your, your friends and family what God has done for you. It's God who saved this man through Jesus. They're one in the same. Like I said, the man wants to be a disciple, but Jesus says no. And this is on purpose, and it's actually really profound because he, he's, he's basically sending this guy out as a missionary, right, in, into a Gentile country. So what is it that qualifies this man to be a missionary in his hometown? Does he have theological training? Does he understand the Old Testament? Does he have a big picture of the gospel and how it's all set to work? No, not any of that. What he had was an experience, a profound encounter with God, and that is what qualifies him from Jesus to go back and spread the gospel to the people around him. 
And it is profound because, surprise, surprise, it worked. His testimony uh, works. Jesus returns back to this region. Later in Luke, we're going to read about it. And he's not greeted by one demon-possessed man and a bunch of pigs. He's greeted by a crowd of thousands. And we can uh, basically assume that it's through this man's story and the testimony of what Jesus did for him that the word began to spread and Jesus' fame was made known and more and more people came to understand who Jesus was. So today, in the second half of this story in, in Luke 8, we're reminded of, well, a lot of things, but basically that Jesus, first of all, is the powerful. He is the most high son of God. Jesus is the light of the world that overpowers darkness, both then and now and truly forever. Jesus brings new life by, by killing evil at its source, And so as we consider these things, as we hear the gospel from God's word, as always, we are left with an opportunity to respond to it, aren't we? As the good news of Jesus is in our hearts, revealed in the word, how will we respond this morning? There are, there are different responses in the story, aren't there? Um, there's the group, the, the farmers, and then their friends who come back, and they're terrified, and they, they actually, what do they do? They beg Jesus to leave. They say, they say, please get out of here. Whatever you're doing, we want nothing to do with it. Please go away. This is because the kingdom of heaven does confront our sin, right? If we are only interested in our little empires here and now, in our own economies and what we have to rely on, then Jesus is... Actually, he's going to mess those things up. I guarantee it. He is. So will we ask Jesus, in, in response to this, will we ask him to leave out of fear of the way that his, his kingdom clashes with kingdoms of the world, so to speak? I hope not. Uh, because then there's the man whose life was touched by Jesus, whose life was changed by Jesus, who experienced the peace of God where before all he had was chaos and brokenness. And he sits at the feet of Jesus. He gives thanks to Jesus. He learns from him and he wants to be with Jesus. So this is the response in a sense that I hope we have today as we, as we consider Jesus' forgiveness of our own sins, right? Jesus' redemption in our own lives. Jesus' salvation for our own souls. So whoever you are, listen this morning as I tell you that God is the same uh, yesterday, he's the same today, and the same forever. And that this presence that we read about of Jesus at work destroying evil is present now in our own lives, in our own world, at work for the the advancement of his kingdom to overcome darkness. And this is very good news, isn't it? We who love God, we long to see the healing of Jesus uh, poured out far and wide to experience it, not, not just for ourselves, but in our neighborhoods and in our city and in the world. So the call for each of us, again, is simply to believe 
that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is who this story teaches about, and that God's grace and love are poured out on us through him as we repent and we receive it in abundance above and beyond. And so this happened in the incident of the story, but where it really all came to pass was at Jesus' death on the cross, isn't it? And so we come to the cross each Sunday. We come to the cross this morning, and in light of the story, we can see that all the evil in the world could not destroy God's plan in Jesus, right? The light was not overcome by darkness, even at the cross. In fact, it's actually the other way around. That Jesus' death on the cross is the means through which God destroys the power of sin in his creation, right? Jesus absorbed the sin of the world and turns death back on itself by overcoming the grave eternally in light and power forever. So I wanted to close by reading uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 56 to 58, and then we'll pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians says this, that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that your power breaks this curse of sin and death, God, that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, ultimately, God. I pray for this power to be poured out in our lives as we repent and we return to you from our sin, God, and we draw close to you. Help us, Lord, to trust that your ways are so much higher than our own understandings. As we are disciples following Jesus in our own lives, God, uh, we, we want to trust you even as we may not know uh, how we're going to get where we're going. We might not be so sure about the destination, God, but with you, Jesus, we trust you to take your love into the world, your mission, even through us in our lives, Lord. So we thank you for this. We rely on you and trust in you, God. We thank you for the freedom that you provide leading us as we follow Jesus, freedom from sin, freedom from death. And again, may we not only experience this power in our own lives, but let us be like the man from whom the story uh, went out, that he shared it with others, leading others to Jesus as well, God. So would you remind us again this morning through communion of your sacrificial love for us at the cross. Lord, our sin was placed on your son, Jesus, who was holy and completely undeserving of punishment, yet you look on us and forgive us because of what Jesus did for each one of us. Lord, would you draw us near to you as we receive the profound blessing of communion today, Lord. We love you, our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.